0: This is the John Oakley Show Podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show Podcast for Friday, November 13th, 2020. We speak to a sports memorabilia collector who has found himself in possession of one of the most highly coveted garments in the golfing world. And a vaccine for COVID-19 might be on the horizon, but what hurdles do we face in getting it to market? All of this starts now. mayor actually suggested this yesterday watch the masters Uh, just stay inside don't go out socialize so it's not a tall order to fulfill because I plan to do exactly that as a matter of fact uh, got an eye glancing at it on the monitor from time to time because it's such a a pivotal part of uh, the sporting year and by the way usually happens in the spring it's a harbinger of spring but now in November uh, that's kind of novel And it involves uh, a lot of iconography, too, not just the course itself. And uh, as beautiful and lush as that is, the green jacket that's handed out on Sunday has become one of the true icons in all of the sporting realm. And uh, very few people. uh, It's just, I guess, a select number in a very uh, select group that actually do have their hands on a jacket. And then there's Chris O'Brien. He's a sports memorabilia collector. He, too, owns a green jacket. How'd that come about, and uh, what is the story of the fabled green jacket from the Masters? Let's find out. Chris O'Brien has joined the Oakley Show this afternoon here at Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Chris, how you doing? Good, John. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate you coming on. Uh, you got yourself a green jacket. Uh, how'd that come about? I mean, uh, I didn't see you playing in the Masters of uh, recent vintage or anything like that. So what? What gives?
1: No, there's there's no chance I'll be playing in the Masters anytime <laughs> soon uh, or ever, for that matter. Uh, I was a I was a kid that that loved sports. My dad I grew up in the Bronx and taught me the taught me all about sports. I loved it, and so I followed it as a kid. And he was a devotee to to golf and We watched the Masters every, you know, every year when it came on. And so when I got a little older, I started collecting all this sports memorabilia. And uh, I have about 500 pieces, but, you know, you always try to get a piece which is iconic in a particular sport. And, you know, the green jacket is among the rarest and and, uh, most coveted of the pieces. And so years ago, it was being auctioned by one of the major auction houses that tend to sell these things. Uh, a, a very high-quality organization. And uh, and I bid on it, and uh, I won it. And uh, and the rest is history. I now display it in my home, and, and it's kind of the most important piece I have.
0: Did you actually uh, have any idea of its provenance? In other words, uh, who might have owned it originally?
1: I did, actually, uh, because the uh, auctioneer, uh, and I'm not going to remember off the top of my head who it was, is a very well-established one. They provide you with uh, a deep background on where the jacket came from, the provenance, and everything. And so, it was a gentleman named Ron Alexander uh, who was a member many years ago. Not a winner, but a, but a member. And uh, and it was quite rare that you would ever see it. In fact, it was the only time I ever saw a jacket uh, being auctioned off. And I wasn't even allowed No, I didn't even know if you could actually uh, 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 own it and buy it because I had some knowledge of the fact that. Uh, that they generally didn't come off campus. And so I bought it. And, um, and I know that there were jackets that were sold subsequently, where uh, Augusta did get involved in, and, and brought them back onto campus. But I guess they've allowed me to continue to own mine all these years.
0: Wow. Uh, You know, it's fascinating because I've even heard it implied that maybe they uh, cite proprietary rights or something like that, like the jackets are not supposed to leave the campus, as you call it. Uh, And this obviously belonged to a member. Members get them. And that's a select group as well, as well as people who win them uh, by winning the tournament uh, in the year since, I guess, 1937 when this was established. So is there any legality involved as to uh, whether or not people are permitted to own them outside of Augusta?
1: Well, I think if, if it's demonstrated that the jacket was stolen, and I think there have been jackets stolen uh, by employees and otherwise, I think then Augusta uh, uh, goes out and, and tries to bring them back onto campus, and, as quite frankly they should. Uh, but in this particular case, this was a, a member who decided to, to sell it. Um, it's been, he sold it eight years ago. I've owned it for about eight years. It's been public that I own it. This isn't the first time the New York Times article... That came out recently. It isn't the first time that it's been known uh, that, I, that I have it. And, um, and so I think, hopefully, they made the decision that it's in good hands. And I treat it with, I treat it with reverence. It uh, stays on a mannequin. Uh, no one wears it. Uh, no one will ever wear it. And uh, as I've said publicly, the only two people that ever should wear it is a winner and a member. But other than that, it stays on that mannequin, and it's for all uh, to see.
0: What size is it, by the way?
1: You know, I, off the top of my head, it's I think I don't know because I've not worn it, but it looks like it's about a 42 or a 44, from what I understand. Mr. Alexander, before he passed away, he was a he was a big guy, and so uh, uh, bigger than me, and so it looks like a uh, looks like a big jacket, but it has all the the uh, the designation that you would really be excited about, the gold buttons that are that are uh, imprinted with the with the Augusta logo, along with the. With it on the pocket of the jacket and the name inside. So it's got all the stuff that you really want to see an Augusta jacket hat
0: authentic. In other words, Chris O'Brien's with a sports memorabilia collector, owner of a green jacket, one of which will be awarded on Sunday to the winner of the Masters. And these are indeed rare. Uh, and so, so rare to the extent that as a, a commodity, if I can call it that, uh, there's a, an actual market at auction for these things. You said you bought yours. Have you followed the prices of any of these things that rarely come up at auction and what they're fetching?
1: I have a little bit because I'm a collector. You generally need to know what they go for. Um, if anybody actually sold, like a winner sold their jacket, um, and I'm not aware of any winner ever having sold their jacket, um, you know, that's a, that's a number that's going to go for half a million dollars to a million dollars for the jacket, for sure. Um, hmm. And that's if a winner ever sold their jacket, and I'm not particularly sure they ever could or would. Um, uh, the members, a lot of the members, some of the members that were selling them were selling them for between fifty dollars and $100,000. Uh, over the last couple of years, there was actually a website that was established that uh, tried to make a market in this, but I think that they have, uh, uh, they have discontinued that effort. Uh, but in general, the jacket itself was being sold for fifty dollars to $100,000. I bought mine a long time ago. It was a lot of money, but it was $17,000. And so it's worth a lot more than I paid for it, but it's not my intention to uh, ever sell the jacket. It's, it's uh, too, too important a piece of my, um, my memorabilia collection.
0: I'm guessing it's insured.
1: It is. Everything that I have bought in my life uh, is insured. While that's the most iconic piece I probably have, I have several other very important pieces of sports memorabilia. Uh, in my home. And so by definition, I have it all insured and alarmed and all the things that you would expect.
0: Just for instance, by the way, I wanted to point out, uh, I was reading a note where uh, the relatives of a member back in the day uh, decided they didn't need the jacket anymore. They'd insured it for 50 grand. But when they put it up at auction, it fetched, this is back in 2013, not that long ago, 682,000 US, which is a million Canadian. That gives you a sense for what you've got in your possession there.
1: Yeah, and I think, although I, if I cor- if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that was a player's jacket. That was the family of a player's jacket. So that may have been a winner's jacket, and that's a little different than having a member's jacket. But it gives you an indication if it's a winner's jacket, it's pretty valuable.
0: Indeed. By the way, uh, what are the other important pieces of memorabilia you just cited, if I can ask?
1: Sure. Well, I collect almost every sport because that's what I was into. So, for instance, Uh, and I I, you know if you're if you're a fan of of the New York Giants football team as I am all my life since I was born and raised in New York um, uh, Lawrence Taylor perhaps the greatest football player uh, certainly the greatest defensive football player of all time I acquired his uh, first Super Bowl trophy uh, that he won in uh, 1990 and 1991 and uh, you know that's pretty rare it's not very common that a that a world, you know, the best football player in the world ultimately sold their Super Bowl trophy again. Sold it through a through an auction, and I was able to acquire it, and and that was pretty exciting for me. Um, Bill Rizzuto, one of the great Yankees of all time, uh, when he passed away, his estate sold his Golden Glove uh, again. Very rare thing that you win in the, in a Major League. You don't see a lot of them, and particularly from not uh, from an iconic player like him. And I was able to acquire the, his piece as well, a baseball uh, a bat signed by Ty Cobb, a couple of pieces, uh, baseball signed by Babe Ruth. So tend to acquire more vintage stuff because I'm 62 years old. So those that once that interest me tend to be a little bit older than the more current players.
0: Well, wow, just out of curiosity, again, you've stoked my uh, curiosity. The, the bat signed by Ty Cobb uh, relative to the baseball uh, signed by Babe Ruth, which has more value on the market?
1: Uh, Ty Cobb's bat by a great deal, and, but that's not because he's more revered than, uh, than Babe Ruth. In the memorabilia space, it depends on how often they sign. All right, so Babe Ruth was a prolific signer. Uh, he used to hand, sign everything he could get his hands on and hand them out to kids. He was really good about that. And so there's a lot of baseballs and, and a memory of them out there in the Babe Ruth world. Ty Cobb uh, didn't quite have the uh, congenial reputation that, uh, that Babe Ruth had, and so he was less of a signer. So his stuff, while it's certainly available, uh, is a little bit more rare. So um, if you ever find a baseball signed by shoeless Joe Jackson, who who was reputed to be illiterate, so he didn't sign much, but he did sign a few. That would be a very rare piece, and that would sell for quite a bit of quite a bit of money.
0: How about hockey? Anything from the hockey world?
1: I do. We're Ranger fans here in New York, and so Wayne Gretzky was a Ranger for a very long period of time, uh, or and and uh, and uh, we were able to secure a stick signed by him. But a lot of the great Bobby Hull. Bobby or a lot of the greats of, uh, of the old uh, of the teams that would have played in the 60s and 70s that that I would have known when I was growing up as a kid. Uh, I have a lot of sticks and, and uh, things signed by them, including some more recent Rangers, right? Uh, like uh, Henrik Lundqvist, who we had assigned uh face mask of Henrik Lundqvist. So a lot of the greats in hockey, and obviously, uh, because it's Canada, in your world, um, you would be most interested in, in, in hockey. And I can't remember off the top of my head, but guys like Stan Makeda, uh, places like that, I'm sure I have some Montreal Canadiens, but off the top of my head, I can't remember who I have. That, that, would, uh, that would be um, you know hero, hero to, the, to your Canadian fans
0: i got going to sign baseball from Carlos Delgado uh, with the uh, red clay from Georgia right on it because I threw it out uh opening not on opening day but uh the opener uh at a game and uh skipped it in uh in st- <laughs> about 57 <laughs> feet and and he pulled it out of the dirt and signed it for me so uh there you go it's got a story behind it uh not as really good as yours but uh, it's still it's part of my memorabilia collection very limited as it is chris great to share your passion with you i appreciate that and uh, the great stories behind the green jacket the fabled green jacket at the masters being awarded again on sunday thanks so much for your time all the best in your collecting
1: Thanks for having me, John. Good luck.
0: You got it. Chris O'Brien, sports memorabilia collector, owner of a green jacket. The price on those things is astronomical. So, uh, but of course, as they say, priceless for anybody who wins it. Earlier this week, when there was an announcement from Pfizer that they'd come up with a vaccine that looks to be 90% effective at this point, and so uh, everybody got properly giddy, and uh, understandably so. Mind you, uh, the devil oft times is in the details. You know, even in normal times, mass vaccination campaigns involve many moving parts within a vast network of suppliers, transporters and middlemen. And to that end, uh, I guess we need to clarify just how we would get this to the people who obviously are in... uh, desperate straits and want this thing so we can get back to some sense of normalcy joining me on the line right now to help us understand the whole distribution network thing john keogh founder and managing principal with shantala which specializes in the integrity and transparency of, of supply chains as well as consumer trust john good to have you back in the oakley show good afternoon
2: Hi, John. Thanks for having
0: me. So tell me about the potential rollout of this. I mean, if they get the emergency approval from the FDA, this is Pfizer. uh, They got their plants working double time in Belgium, one, and Kalamazoo is the other. Uh, Hopefully, you know, we'd get dibs. We've got 20 million of these uh, shots on order. Uh, It would impact 10 million people because you got to take it twice within the span of a, a couple of weeks, three weeks, I guess. What are the logistics that uh, you can see that are necessary to understand how uh, this is not necessarily an easy thing it 's like Ike planning d day i guess uh, walk us through it
2: yeah it 's complex you know I spent my whole career in uh, in supply chains, but I started my career in military logistics and uh, so if if i and i 've advised uh, you know North American industry also in pharma. So, if, if I look broadly at the North American uh, pharmaceutical industry, uh, they have some of the most advanced logistics uh, capabilities in the world. So they're very competent and very, very efficient. But what they what they have right now will not be good enough for what they need to have for this new vaccine, because it's going to be the most complex supply chain that was ever built. And as you pointed out, John, you need two, two doses per, per person, per patient. So the coordination of all of the components of that, from the vials, the little bottles, uh, to the syringes, the needles, the labeling, and and the coolers, plus the dry ice, this is going to be very complex. So if, if uh, Pfizer, you know, delivers on their promise of 50 million doses this year, the U.S. gets 25 million, that's 12.5 million people, that's still only about 4% of the U.S. population, whereas we know about 60%, of the U.S. population, are about 200 million people, have underlying conditions that, uh, that you know, w- would be a problem in the COVID era.
0: So how would we in Canada go about prioritizing? I know the Prime Minister has somewhat addressed this. Uh, it has come up. You know, is it going to be people in the front lines, the elderly, the particularly vulnerable, some even suggesting we ought to give it to kids first? How do you see it?
2: Well, there's four major challenges, infrastructure, ethics, security, and IP. If I look at the ethics one, to answer your question, we, we have an issue with the U.S. with sovereignty. And we know that uh, U.S. government refused to join COVAX, which is 150 countries working together and pooling resources. So, so the sovereignty remains an issue. And one country could say, you know what, we're not, we're not shipping it to anybody yet. So that 20 million, uh, that's, I would say that's still at risk. In Canada, we have a problem because we have some private healthcare that may prioritize it for their members. And I think it should go to first line, you know, frontline workers first and critical jobs. But it has to be based on need and risk and then people with underlying conditions and then looking at uh, race and ethnicity, uh, which is a problem because I think most of the infections are, are, are coming in people that are uh, either uh, black or brown or uh, from minority groups uh, due to their living conditions and, and, and so on. So I think it's going to be a difficult challenge. We need to get our ethicists involved in it. And uh, to be quite honest, I've seen this go wrong three weeks ago. I went for a flu Shot in the private clinic in Toronto. And they told me they didn't have it after telling me for weeks they would have it. It turns out they admitted. They admitted to me that uh, they had prioritized the people with higher subscriptions uh, to be first in line. And you should not be doing that for the flu shot, and we should not be doing that for the COVID vaccine.
0: So who would then be in charge to coordinate this? Which branch of government uh, and how do you appoint somebody? I mean, is There's got to be oversight, I guess, uh, from Central Command, doesn't there?
2: Absolutely. You're going to have to have a number of uh, groups here from the public health agencies, as I mentioned, medical ethicists, and also people looking at uh, Canada broadly. How do we get it out uh, into the cities, but, you know, the underlying or the, the out, outer line areas and the rural areas, areas in Canada where we have problems? So that whole logistics effort. We don't have we don't have the the cooling. The, these, the vaccines need to be stored at minus 70 Celsius. We, that's unheard of. You know the current cold chain is two to eight Celsius. So even having the infrastructure on delivering those, that's a significant challenge. So who gets it is the first challenge. And then how do you get it to them is another significant challenge. And if I mentioned, could mention this, uh, John, from a security perspective, this needs military-grade logistics and security, like the transit of uh, weapons or explosives. The production plant in Kalamazoo and, uh, and in, in Belgium... They would need protection. The staff would need protection. There's a possibility here of hijacking and theft, a significant uh, risk of that. So you're probably talking about uh, armed security, escorting these in transit around the country for distribution. That poses a challenge for Canada today.
0: Wow. Uh, Yeah, well, it's uh, very lucrative, I guess, uh, cargo. Again, with John Keogh, founder and managing principal with Chantella, specializing in the integrity and transparency of supply chains as well as consumer trust. The other things that I mean, uh, people perhaps haven't baked into the equation yet because it's still early, uh, but you've got to get enough people to come back for the second dose. Otherwise, it's really ineffective. So you've got to sell them on that, uh, although I'm guessing there'd be more uh, willing people to do that then there's the other uh, aspect we're being told Uh, many vaccines are concurrently being developed and may actually enter the market as well uh, in this same kind of window where Pfizer is rolling their product out who's to determine who gets which vaccine or uh, I mean we could be you know cross signals happening as a consequence Uh, do you see that as a, a potential logistical nightmare
2: it is going to be a logistics nightmare for sure. Like who, who makes that decision or who gets them? Uh, again, we have we have experience now, John, with the flu vaccine, and I've personally experienced it, where the flu vaccine, which is free, uh, was prioritized for private healthcare uh, uh, members who pay a higher subscription than what I did. And they admitted that to me, and they said they would rectify that, but that's not good enough. We're going to have exactly the same thing. We're going to have people uh, with a higher income level or access to private clinics, they will be struggling or fighting to get access to the drugs. We should have ethical distribution, and that's going to be the, probably one of the biggest challenges on top of the physical logistics and the security of the shipments.
0: Plus, you're going to need the other material to uh, coincide with this, I guess. Syringes, needles, those kinds of medical supplies will also have to be shipped to the location where these things, the, the vials are being distributed, Correct.
2: Absolutely. All of those uh, components are absolutely critical, but not only that, let's say you, you have a perfect scenario, John, where you have all the vials, you have the syringes, the needles, the labels, and you have the coolers. Then you have to figure out the transit of them across the country. So one of the bigger issues we have today, and pharma is better than the food industry and other industries. If you go back to what we've experienced now in the supply chain in Canada, people are talking about a food security issue. We don't have a food security issue because we have enough food. We have a food uncertainty issue because we don't know where it is. And that's that speaks to what we call supply chain interoperability. So a big issue, what we what we have today and what we need to overcome is We need to have real-time tracking. Think of like UPS or DHL when they're tracking a shipment. You need to be able to know where the shipment is, what is the current temperature of it, what is the temperature of it during the journey, and was it maintained at uh, minus 70 degrees Celsius? Because in good times, we lose 25% of vaccines due to inappropriate handling. And then when it gets to the nurse or the doctor that are administering it, uh, they have to be trained on how to protect the vaccines from going going off during their storage in their location while they're waiting for patients to come in. So, challenges.
0: yeah, well, it sounds like it, but uh, you just mentioned DHL. Would, you know, carriers like UPS and FedEx, DHL, or even Canada Post uh, be entrusted with the delivery system here? Do you think that's the way it's going to work?
2: I think we have we have uh, very competent organizations, even organizations that support you know the Amazons of of the world in the physical distribution. They know how to get products out there. Again, the issue is in the cold chain, and we haven't seen this before. We don't have fridges, or freezers that can go to minus seventy Celsius normally in our supply chain. So, trying to get those will be a big challenge. Uh, if we do have all of these little uh, uh, coolers. They could be moved by, you know, in planes and uh, and, and and in trucks, in cars. Um, but the proper storage, the proper handling is essential.
0: Wow, it's going to be like moving plutonium, for crying out loud. Uh, interesting, yeah. though, to find out that this is the story behind the good news, and uh, it still remains to be seen that we can pull this off and uh, make it an efficient delivery system so that more people get the vaccine as soon as possible. John, good to talk to you. I appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for your time.
2: Thanks, John. Have a nice weekend.
0: And you, John Keogh, founder and managing principal with Chantella. That's a wrap for the Oakley Show podcast for Friday, November 13, 2020. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify.